Chris Kaneen is Professor of Criminology at the Jumbana Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Technology, Sydney. In addition to his latest book, Do Fund the Police, which we'll be talking about today, Chris has published widely on First Nation legal issues, decolonialism, youth justice, policing, penality and justice reinvestment. Defund the Police explores the social, economic, cultural and historical context behind the growing calls to divest in policing as it exists today. It explains the rationale for police abolition and offers ideas for new ways of approaching social issues from within the community. Chris, thank you for being with us today and welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been an absolute delight reading your book and I am really looking forward to our discussion today. So I'm going to dive straight in with my questions. So... Isn't the call to defund the police predominantly a reaction to the often racist violence and brutality that we've sadly become all too familiar with um, in the United States of America? Is there really a broader need for a defunding of the police? Well, one of the things that really inspired me to write the book was that the movement around challenging police power, particularly during the July period of 2020, was actually far broader uh, than the events in relation to George Floyd in the US. I mean, there's, there's I suppose, something of a, a, a preconception that um, it was the death of George, George Floyd that, that yeah, was the primary focus. And certainly um, there are lots of references internationally to the Black Lives Matter movement. But the issue, first of all, the issue around racist violence and brutality is certainly not... Um, confined to the US. And so there was a broad international uprising or insurrection, as I've called it in the subtitle of the book, during that period of, of the mid-2020s. I think yeah, there's a couple of things that come out of that. Firstly, yes, there was a reaction to what was happening in the United States, but the broader international movement, which covered really both the global north and the global south, was driven by events that were, were often quite local local concerns about racist violence by policing about, about and by security agencies and ongoing movements within various countries. And I think one of the things that struck me when I started working on the book was that the uprising, if you like, was not focused in any one country. It was across Africa. It was across Asia, North, uh, sorry, Central and, and um, South America across many countries in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And so it was truly an international uprising. And although it might have been sparked by a particular event, many of these countries have had ongoing demonstrations and protests about police killings for, for many years. And indeed, the, the kind of nature of police violence in many countries is really quite extensive. I mean, if we look at places like Brazil, for example, Police kill six times the number of people that they do in the United States, and that's with a population in Brazil, which is probably a bit less than a, half that of, of the United States. If we look at the Philippines, now there have been tens of thousands of deaths by police and vigilantes uh, under the Duterte regime and their uh, so-called war on drugs. And so if we look at Africa, we look at countries there, there's been various pro ongoing protests around Police, police killings. Similarly, uh, in in Southeast Asia, uh, and many of these are focused as well on issues of racism. About seventy, more than seventy percent of people that are killed, for instance, in Brazil, in Brazil are black, and certainly across Central and um, 
South America, many of the people that are killed are also Indigenous peoples, as they are, for example, in Australia. Um, so I think it's important to understand that, yes, we had an event in mid-2020 um, that was sparked by the televised, if you like, uh, killing of, of George Floyd. But even in the United States, the Black Lives Matter movement predates that by a decade. And so it was not simply a US phenomena. It was truly an international phenomenon. And I think, as I say, that really pushed me to think about writing a book and to bring that context in so that we can understand that concerns about racism and about violence by police and security agencies is an international phenomenon, not one that's is simply confined to the United States. And I think the issues that emerge from it are also international. So, you know, the questions about the failure of police to protect women in, in relation to violence against women, uh, and indeed to, to, to perpetrate violence against women, the killings of, of people with disabilities uh, by police, are again, an international phenomena. I mean, LGBTQI communities as well um, in terms of their targeting. And so following on from that, what I was interested in doing was really looking at some of the kind of roots of these problems. And, and one of the areas that I explore in the book is the, is the colonial foundations of policing, um, which is important in terms of understanding the ubiquitous nature of, of police violence uh, and also the racist targeting of police violence and the way colonial systems of policing have continued in in post-colonial countries in in Africa or in India and so we need to kind of understand that that's also an international uh, dimension of this and not only in the global south but also in the global north in terms of of Canada or Australia where uh indigenous and, and black people are, are well and truly overrepresented amongst the victims of, of police killings. Mm. And to understand that, we need to kind of dig deeper, if you like, into the roots of policing and, and their role over a much longer period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I guess my next question is, why defund? Why don't we just invest more in reforming the police and enable it to become a force that better fits the need of needs of society today? Well, I think it's partly answered by, by the... The, the institutional history of policing. And so it's not just a matter of, of reforming uh, and investing more in something that has been demonstrably um, violent since its beginnings uh, and has, I think more importantly, has failed to reform itself. Um, one of the, again, one of the things that I look at in the book is, is really just the last 50 years of the extensive nature of royal commissions, presidential commissions, formal inquir judicial inquiries uh, and other, other inquiries, which have come up with an endless you know, list of reforms, much of which are repeated from, you know, whether we're talking about Barack Obama's presidential commission on, on policing in, in um, the US to Louise Casey's most recent report uh, on the London Metropolitan Police. I mean, what you see... Um, is this sort of endless ongoing programs for reform, which are never implemented. I mean, yeah, the recent example in the UK with, with Casey's report, the Metropolitan Police, I mean, it's, it's repeating uh, calls, for example, for diversity in policing, which of course was in the McPherson report 22, 23 years previously. Uh, we see the same calls for increased diversity in the Obama 
presidential commission after the Ferguson uprising. We see it uh, in India. If you look at it, you know the the programs for increasing diversity uh, in terms of um, recruiting more women, recruiting more people from Adivasi and Dalit communities. And of course, what Louise Casey says about the Metropolitan Police, that it would take you know, so many decades at the current rate of change to bring about diversity, has also been identified in India. I think you know some states of India, at the current rate of change, it would take over a century uh, to meet the targets for the employment of women. And I think yeah, these are just ongoing, repeated failures. And, and the problem with the reform agenda is that it just keeps saying, well, this is what we need. This is what we need to change the police. And of course, things don't happen. I've mentioned diversity. One could go through pages of calls for increased training uh, for police across the whole gamut of, of various issues uh, and so on. You know, technological solutions like body cams, which have been you know demonstrably a failure in terms of controlling police violence. Community policing is always there. You know, it's always one of these reforms. It's again in the recent Casey report um, in relation to the London Met. It was a it was a linchpin to Obama's presidential commission that we need community policing. And inevit inevitably what's meant by community policing is not the community controlling policing, but you know, policing of the community. And much of this is driven by the idea that uh, police legitimacy, uh, you know, is a, fundament, a fundamentally important idea. And yet, you know, if we look at the history of policing, uh, you know, legitimacy has never been there. Uh, you know, what legitimacy did the British have in terms of, you know, policing Kenya or policing Nigeria? What what legitimacy did they have in terms of policing First Nations people uh, mm. in Australia? There's a fundamental contradiction between police power and the idea of legitimacy. And so I think, you know, these things are, are, are misplaced. And what we end up with is this sort of endless repetition uh, of calls to reform, which which simply don't um, don't bring about an, bring about any change in relation to the way policing works. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally, um, yeah, ref reform isn't uh, has, uh, I think you say in the book that, you know, that the history of reform demonstrates that it, it 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 simply doesn't it doesn't work it doesn't make any changes it it just it just repeats itself um in effect and you know if i could add to that i think uh, some of the work that's been done by critical um scholars like alex vitale who's looked at um police forces in the us which have achieved some diversity where there is you know a broad representation and i think he identifies uh, New York and, and possibly Philadelphia, I can't remember the other example, where there's a broad um, correlation between the population and the and the makeup of the police. And, and what various studies have shown is that it doesn't increase police legitimacy. There's still as much dissatisfaction, particularly among black and minoritised groups with policing, um, as there is amongst those police forces that aren't diverse. And I think this raises the question about the institutional power, the political power of police, sorry, the, the power of police within the broader political political system, um, which has not changed. And, you know, other recent police killings in the US have been, uh, you know, brought about by, by black, black police officers uh, in black police forces, which are led by black police commissioners. Uh, and so, you know, the problem doesn't change by the colour or the gender um, of the police officer. And I think that's a broader... A broader issue that that's 
you know, challenges this idea that I, I do a, a diversified police uh, force um, will change the way that it operates. And uh, so certainly I think that's you know, just one more example of the, of the problems of, of police reformism. It's interesting, though. So reform isn't uh, or hasn't been an answer uh, thus far. But if we uh, reduce the power and the scope of the police as it stands currently, wouldn't we end up with absolute anarchy? I mean, are there really viable alternatives to to having a police force? Well, let's just take the fir- the first bit first, the, the bit about anarchy. Would we have anarchy? I mean, I think to take another example from India, I mean, it was only recently that the Chief Justice of India said that police forces constituted the greatest threat to bodily integrity in India. So, you know, if you want an example of, of uh, anarchy, if you like, in terms of the use of, of violence against that's targeted against particular groups, I mean, that's an example. I mean, I think the other issue around this is that this mistaken view that police actually solve crime that that's you know that's what they do you know they prevent anarchy because they can solve crime and I think the again it's an area that I look at and it's one that's I think well known amongst criminologists that that police don't solve crime I mean we know most crimes not reported um, and most crime that is reported uh, is not solved and again I think you know if, if we think about Violence against women, as an example, it's an area in particular where we know that there's very low reporting rates uh, to police of domestic violence and sexual assault, and we know that there's an extraordinarily low uh, rate at which those problems, those ones, those acts of violence which are reported, are then solved by police. And so the idea that police protect society, I think. Um, is fundamentally flawed on their own terms, that is, in terms of uh, solving uh, solving crime. So that's part of the answer to, to well, you know, would we have anarchy? I think we do have anarchy now uh, if, we, if we look at what police say they do and actually what occurs in reality and uh, the level of violence that exists. So what about viable alternatives then? What, what, what would they look like, do you think? Look, I think um, it depends specifically on the area that, you, that you're that you looking at. I mean, I think, one, again, one of the things that I was interested in, in exploring uh, in the book is the way specific groups of activists have put forward viable alternatives. I mean, one of the, one of the groups that's been particularly important in, in pushing the whole idea of defunding the police or, or more generally around police abolitionism has been uh, disability activists. Because we know that uh, so many people that are killed, 40 to 50%, depending if you're looking at Australia or the US or Canada, uh, are people with disabilities. Uh, indeed, you know, in Canada, in the lead up to July 2020 demonstrations, uh, more than two thirds of the recent police killings were people with disabilities and from black or indigenous or other minority communities. In Canada, and that was a really a, an important part of uh, the movement there. And so, disability activists have been really important in, in pushing for change, and at the same time, very important in terms of thinking about alternatives uh, to policing. And so, as I say in the book, one of the great misnomers uh, of the use of police is the idea that police can conduct welfare checks on people with disabilities. That's a situation which 
just yesterday was was given as an example of someone shot dead by police in in the US, where a parent, a family member, um, or a, or a community health agency calls the police to check on somebody because they're worried about them. Police to arm police turn up, multiple armed police turn up, uh, and within a short period of time, that person is either killed or you know, seriously injured as a result of the police intervention. And this is what's you know, euphemistically called a welfare check. So it's not surprising, you know, you know, I'm using this as one example of a viable alternative. Yeah, it's not, it's not surprising that people are looking at, well, what, what should be done if someone's going through a mental health crisis? Why call the police? Or why call for support and get the police as the responders mm-hmm. uh, to the incident? Mm-hmm. And so there's a good example, I think, in the US, which is, is probably more broadly wide known, of cahoots, um, which is, you know, providing a response to pl- to people in mental health crisis, which doesn't involve the police. Uh, in most of these, in the vast, vast majority of these cases, there is no need for a police response. What these people need is support uh, rather than, and professional support in some cases, mm-hmm. rather than an armed response. And we've just had in Australia a Royal Commission uh, into disability, and we heard from you know, many people with disabilities uh, who had been confronted by police in a welfare check. And as one person with a disability said, you know, if you're confronted by an armed police officer who's yelling at you uh, to do this or to do that, you'll lose it every time. Yeah, that'll be, your, yeah, you'll just lose, you lose the plot. Uh, and so, yeah, the outcome of that uh, is then escalating use of violence by police, which is what they're trying to do for people who uh, don't comply. And so the result is a complete disaster. Uh, and so I think, you know, disability activists have been really important in, in showing a viable response. <laughs> I could go on. Yeah, there are other important examples, I think, around this. Um, community defence mechanisms for dealing and dealing with and providing for community safety. We see examples of this uh, in, say, Canada and Australia, where Indigenous peoples uh, are, you know, developing their own community safety processes because they know that police don't provide community safety. Mm. And so I think that that's a really, you know, again, another important example of a viable alternative, viable alternatives. And I think just the last two I mentioned very briefly is changing drug policies uh, in terms of what needs to be done. You know, it, drug policies internationally are a disaster in terms of the criminalization, the brutalization, uh, and in many countries, uh, you know, the killing of people by by police. And so they're really, uh, again, if, if you have a concern about the growth in internationally in the imprisonment of women, you know, many, many, many women throughout the world are in prison in relation to drug policies. And so I think that's a key area, key area for change in terms of looking at another way of dealing with uh, issues related to, to drug misuse that don't involve criminal justice um, interventions. And the final example, very quickly, is the whole movement to, to disarm and, dis- and demilitarise the police. Now, we know the police have always had a kind of militarised capacity from their 
earliest periods with you know the the development of, of policing in Ireland under Peel b- before he came to to London to set up the yeah you know, the so-called Peelian police model mm-hmm. um so yeah there's a there's a long history to the intersection between police and military power mm-hmm. but I think at the same time you know we can we can argue clearly for disarming and demilitarizing the police not as a reform strategy but as a very particular way of decreasing uh, the lethal power of police and enabling a move towards um, a world really without uh, police violence. And I think that, yeah, if we expand on that in terms of the money that's spent, not just on policing, but on the whole carceral system that flows Mm -hmm. on from policing, uh, then we can see that the resources that that could be put into community viable community alternatives uh, is really important. I mean, I know that... um, some of the work in the US that's looked at the amount of funding from the Federal Violence Against Women's Act, Women Act, um, that that so much of that money goes into the criminal legal system rather than to providing what we know, uh, you know, is a basic need, and that's housing. It's a it's a basic need in relation to domestic violence. It's a basic need in terms of mental health issues and for a whole range of other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, rather than spending money on money on housing it goes into spending money on what is essentially repression um okay so the thing is that this notion of defunding the police it feels to me to be a real sea change um and quite a, a significant sea change in our approach to civil order and so i guess my final question to you is how is this ever going to come about what are the conditions that need to be in place to achieve this uh, this alternate vision of how we um, structure society uh, going forward? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, people that are working in this area, whether it's specifically around defund the police or more generally around penal abolitionism, uh, you know, it, it's not an argument that's going to happen. It's not an argument that this will happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen next week. Um, but I think, you know, how we approach this is to look at how we bring about change which retracts and shrinks shrinks sorry the carceral system the criminal legal system and so i mean one of the arguments against reformism is that it actually strengthens police power gives them more resources um again you know what's what is louise casey arguing for in terms of the london metropolitan police more resources uh and so you know it's an argument that what we look at in terms of change is how we retract, uh, shrink the the criminal legal system, and at the same time invest in, not just financially, but politically uh, and socially invest in alternatives, uh, other ways of doing things than the police. So look, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think a program of change that is not reformist, but brings about real change in terms of how we deal with with social problems, and no one's denying that there aren't real social problems that need responses. What people are arguing is that the police are totally incapable of doing that and, in fact, make the situation worse. Mm -hmm. So in terms of bringing that about, I think it is important um, for popular resistance and and the popularisation, if you like, of ideas around the need for change, not just reformist change, but but the change which actually challenges uh, institutional power uh, of the criminal legal system and works towards its retract, retraction uh, and replaces it with 
ways that strengthen community and support community. What would be the one takeaway you would like listeners to this podcast to to think about um, within the context of this conversation about defunding the police? What's what's the sort of the fundamental thing you would you would ask people to uh, to consider as they go about their day? Look, I think yeah, we all. People that are involved in this are, are involved at local area, yeah, in the local area and local struggles, and that's really important. Um, but I think you know to 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 think about the international dimension to all of this that it's it's not something which is just about what's happening in London or in New York or in Baltimore or in Canada or in Australia or in Nigeria or Kenya or, or wherever or Sao Paulo. Yeah, it, it's it is. There are local struggles, but it's the international dimension, I think, which is really important. And I think for people you know, who are working at the local level who can kind of be, easily become disillusioned when you see the endless repetition uh, of police violence in circumstances that have been just going on and on and on for years and decades, um, to be disillusioned about you know, the ability to bring about change. But I think that the, the takeaway from that uprising in... in 2020 is to show I think that that those international connections are really important mm -hmm. to provide strength if you like to what happens at, at a local level and the takeaway really about all of this I think is that uh, one that relates to what we were talking about about reimagination I mean I think you know institutional arrangements and political arrangements become cemented in a way <clears throat> that that limits our ability if you like to think about um, the broader possibilities that are there. And we can't identify what all those possibilities might be, but we certainly have a very good idea of where we might start. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you so much. It has been really great uh, talking to you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Defund the Police is a brilliant and necessary articulation as to why we need to engage with fresh alternatives to an outmoded colonial and imperialist system of social control. Whilst the language of policing tends to centre on notions of community service and safety, the reality is often the criminalisation of society's most vulnerable and marginalised people, while simultaneously protecting its most privileged. Defund the Police is published by Policy Press and is available now from the website and all good book retailers.